This is Mission.org. I'm Alec Baldwin, and you're listening to Marketing Trends and the Leeds Art Week. When we're wandering around the internet, the hard truth is that we are constantly at risk. There are bad actors everywhere attempting to perpetrate cyber attacks on unsuspecting web surfers. And more and more often, those bad actors are utilizing some pretty sophisticated marketing tactics and we don't even realize it. Matt Gillis, the CEO of Clean.io, says it's time we change that mindset. Most of the CMOs and marketing leaders that would be listening to this podcast, you're buying ads and let's just say you're buying ads at a dollar CPM and you're hoping that you get a half a percent click-through rate. That would be awesome. These bad actors have figured out how to buy those same ads for that $1 CPM and inject JavaScript and create a 100% click-through rate. On this episode of Marketing Trends, Matt explains those tactics in depth, and he discusses the role bad actors are playing in the end user's overall experience. Matt also explains why their number one goal of this nefarious activity is not necessarily compensation, but more so engagement. And he identifies why popular extensions are not acting in the user's best interest. Enjoy this episode. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. We bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. Welcome to Marketing Trends. I'm Ian Faison, host of Marketing Trends. And today we are joined by a special guest, Matt, how are you? Hey, thanks for having me in. Glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for joining us. Uh, excited to talk about Clean.io today and all the stuff that you all are doing. Uh, we're going to talk ads and security and a bunch of other cool stuff. Uh, and obviously your background. So let's get into it. How'd you get started in marketing? Well, I've, uh, I've been in mobile probably uh, since I got out of university back in 96. So I'm dating myself. But uh, so always been a mobile guy. And uh, spent some time in my early days of my career uh, on the advertising side, uh, in-house, uh, on client side. And then over the course of the years, uh, you know, the last 10 years or so, I've been in digital media, predominantly helping publishers make money. So helping publishers put ads into their apps and on their websites. And so that's kind of where, uh, where I came from and how I got to the ad side of the business and the, and the marketing side of the business. And now we're in, in this world where we're helping, uh, you know, advertisers and publishers you know, get better results uh, across, you know, their, uh, their spend in making sure that they reach real users on real devices and uh, on real networks and have engaging experiences that aren't disrupted by malicious code. So full circle for me, I started on, on, on the client side and now I'm uh, helping clients uh, preserve their spends. Yeah. And so with, uh, with such a background, you've worked at some really cool companies like Capcom and, and AOL platforms and others you know, moving to to clean.io, um, why were you so excited uh, to uh, to take this next step? Yeah, I mean, it's it's a, it's an interesting question. So yeah, I've spent you know the 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 majority of my career in kind of a, a few different buckets. One is you know kind of uh, you know working at operators. So I worked at at Bell Mobility and at Verizon Wireless. I then uh, spent some time working on the publisher side. So yeah, I, I had a video game company at Capcom uh, acquired that. Uh, and so we were making games for cell phones. So still in mobile, but uh, doing that. And um, the interesting thing for me has been, you know, just these these different journeys. And as I went to Millennial Media and to AOL and subsequently to Oath, which was the combination of AOL and, and Yahoo, 
a lot of my last 10 years was spent on helping publishers make money. And one of the biggest problems that, that I had in the role that I was in was that there were a lot of bad actors out there that were trying to create malicious experiences. And, and it's this thing called malvertising, which you may have heard of. And you may be familiar with when you're on a cell phone and you're scrolling, and then all of a sudden it redirects you to a page that says, congratulations, Ian, you, Ian you've won an Amazon gift card or spin the wheel, Ian, uh, for your chance to win this prize. A lot of that stuff comes through the programmatic media ecosystem. Um, so it's really, it's bad actors that are masquerading as good buyers. So I spent, you know, the better part of the last eight years prior to clean trying to deal with that problem, but not having the tools that I needed to be effective. And so, you know, when I left Oath, uh, you know, the opportunity uh, came to go and join uh, this small startup that was called Clean Creative at the time uh, that was trying to solve this problem of malicious ads. So I joined as the CEO in, in January of 2019. And, you know, we've been on this mission to make ad experiences better on publisher sites, uh, make the user experiences much better, help, uh, you know, publishers preserve their brand reputation, um, because obviously, if you as a user go to one of these sites and you have one of these experiences, you know, it leaves a pretty bad taste in your mouth and you may not go back. You know, we're trying to really do our good for the ecosystem now after the last many years of helping to make money. Now I'm going to go and solve this big problem. Well, ultimately, you know, like <laughs> that's making more money too, right? And that's kind of part of this is that, for example, like we we promote our uh, promote our podcasts through, you know, programmatic and mobile and all that sort of stuff. Uh, there's a lot of people out there that are that are leveraging these platforms and leveraging publishers and and this kind of new new chapter of the world and like we all collectively want those sites to be trusted we want those places those ads to be trusted the last thing we want is uh you know those people you know to skip over that stuff more than more than they already are in a lot of cases with uh with some of the older kind of ad units and things like that so i mean i think it's it's something you know part of the reason why we wanted to talk to you on this show is you know, mobile and, and programmatic and all of this stuff is going to continue going through this evolution. The more bad actors that are that are able to access these systems, it's it's really bad for the user and it's really bad for the publisher and and obviously really bad for the advertiser. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's destructive. I mean, I talk to publishers every day, and you know, we talk. And I was a publisher, so I have empathy for the problem, right? I experienced it myself. You know, it's it's one of those things that. Creating great content is expensive, right? So like doing a great job creating content, super expensive. Driving users to your, your website is also expensive, right? Acquiring eyeballs. And so if you've put the, the commitment into these two things and you haven't solved, you know, making sure that you've protected those users once they get to your website, you know, the whole house of cards is going to fall apart. And, and so, you know, we've seen where, you know, some of these sites, and by the way, no one is intentionally like welcoming this, right? It, it really is one of the, you know, one of the things that happens because of the programmatic e ecosystem, you know, uh, anybody can get a seat on a DSP, on a self-service DSP and start buying ads and can inject malicious JavaScript through these ads, right? So it's, it's you know, there, there's controls in place in most of these places, but there's ways that these bad actors can, can squeak through. Most of the CMOs and, and marketing leaders on, that would be listening to this podcast, you know, you're buying ads and let's just say you're buying ads at a dollar CPM and you're hoping that you get a half a percent uh, click-through rate. Like that would be awesome. These bad actors have figured out how to buy those same ads for that $1 CPM and inject JavaScript and create a 100% click-through rate. And so like, I, I always call them the most sophisticated marketers on the planet because they really know how to turn a, you know, a dollar ad into a hundred percent engagement. 
And then once they've got those users trapped on those landing pages, it's super hard for an end user to get back to where you came from. And so that, yeah. you know, that kind of just creates this massive loop. And for a publisher, it's it, like it, you lose a tremendous amount of money because if you would come to a site and generally go there and spend, you know, eight minutes reading articles, you know, and you'd be, you know, they have predictable KPIs where a publisher would be like, oh, well, we'll serve you 42 ads during that eight minute period. Now your time on site goes from eight minutes to a minute. And now those 42 ads goes to like four ads. And so there's a real, you know, almost irreparable harm to the publisher from an economics perspective, not to mention the end user, you know, experience where you have just such a negative experience as an end user. But yeah, but I've had this happen multiple times. I'm sure, you know, our, our listeners have as well, where, I mean, you go, you try, you keep trying to go back to that site because you need to go there for some reason or to read an article. And yeah, you get that like spin the flywheel or whatever the, <laughs> whatever the stupid, you know, thing sure. is. And you're like, what is going on? You're like, do I have a virus? Like, do I, it's like such a confusing experience. And then you're like, all right, I'm not reading that article or, or I'm not going back there. And again, I think the way that the internet is structured now is like, there's so much of um, the platform where you found it on to to get to that point and, and whatever, like maybe you do or don't remember the website that that was on, but it just degrades your overall experience and it's super harmful. And that's just the user side, you know, and then if that, if that same, you know, site continues to get hacked over and over, over again, it, it'll degrade more. But when you're talking about the money loss part of this is like publishers have it hard enough. So to, to, it's true. to, to cut out, you know, percentages of revenue for stuff like that is, uh, is absolutely brutal. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those things where the publishers really like, you know, they, they truly expect everyone upstream to be good stewards and solve this problem. Like they expect the supply side platforms to solve it. And rightfully so, right. They, they should expect that. And then the supply side platforms expect the demand side platforms to solve it. At the end of the day is what I say to publishers. The only person that's responsible for the happiness of your end users is you, right? Your end users don't care about the, you know, the, the value chain of all the folks that are in the ecosystem upstream. So I really believe that publishers need to take this, you know, the solving this problem into their own hands and take control of it. And, and obviously most all of them do. So, you know, I think hopefully you'll see, you know, the, the, the challenges related to this get better uh, over time, but then you've also got to realize that we're dealing with criminals and uh, you know, these criminals uh, or nefarious actors are always going to be trying to get around, you know, whatever security that you have in place to try and prevent them from doing these activities. So let's, I want to take a step back for a second and just talk about like, you know, programmatic and, and publishers, you know, holistically here. Like, where is the industry at right now? You obviously just left that world and now you're, um, and now you're partnering with those companies and, and delivering clean.io. But like, where, where is the industry at? What can marketers expect, uh, you know, going into the next couple of years from, from these large scale publishers? Well, I mean, I think programmatic, we always say like we're still in the early stages, even though adoption, I think is obviously huge, you know, and you see programmatic, I've seen that like I've been part of this transition and transformation in the early days that when I first started in the digital media business back in 2010, which seems like forever ago, you know, programmatic hadn't really even come to mobile, right? It was still early days. It, it hadn't come to in-app. You know, I think we're, we're, you know, on the maturity cycle kind of well along the way, but I think Publishers are still, you know, they're still, you know, craving demand density and they're still craving, you know, high CPMs. Uh, even the pandemic, I think, you know, really was uh, impactful negatively. And, and the, the pandemic also created an opportunity for bad actors. You know, some of the behaviors that we saw, 
you know, it was kind of like as brand advertisers pulled back, right, as the pandemic started taking hold in you know, March and April and May, publishers relied more and more on programmatic. And guess what? Bad actors now had even more of an opportunity because prices and fill rate had significantly declined, which created this supply demand kind of uh, gap for publishers. So we saw threat levels increase during that time. But I think, you know, just to go back to your question about like, where are we with programmatic and, and publishers? Listen, I think it's, you know, the highest dollar wins. Publishers want to make the most amount of money. You know, more than ever, they're going to seek, you know, who, who can help them, you know, increase yield. You know, one of the benefits I think that publishers have experienced with the pandemic is many have told me that their traffic levels have gone up. So even if their fill rates and their ECPMs declined, they were able to at least hopefully hold at that, that, that revenue level you know, and, and, and make things work. But I think programmatic has, has, has been great for publishers. You know, I think obviously it's, it's great for advertisers because you get to, you know, on a, an impression by impression, pick who you want to market to. Yeah. I mean, it seems to me the same way as well. I think, you know, you, what is the percentage of like the large publishers and large sites and things like that, that are working, that are using like programmatic tools versus like still trying to keep the direct relationships with certain th- sort of things. Like w- how many people are, uh, how many of the big publishers that are out there are still kind of like holding on to some of the more like legacy ways of buying and selling advertising? So I, I mean, I'll preface it with, I have been out of that side of the ecosystem for two and a half years. And, um, and so I think I'm sure things have changed, but even uh, even then, I would say, uh, you know, in my early days at Millennial Media, we had a direct sales force that would call on advertisers and agencies directly. Uh, and then I ran the platforms business, which was basically all of the programmatic uh, revenue. And so for us, you know, in working with publishers, we were bringing them this kind of split of direct demand and programmatic demand. And, you know, you kind of got this, uh, you know, well-rounded piece of, of the pie. I think that most publishers, I, I think that they have probably shifted dramatically to programmatic but they still have relationships that are driving those dollars that are flowing their way. So I think that uh, many advertisers are probably transacting programmatically, you know, whether that's on a, you know, a PMP or, you know, programmatic guaranteed basis or however they're trying to access uh, that supply and guarantee that they get, you know, to the, to the right supply on the right sites with the right users. But I think the transaction of programmatic is probably more pre- prevalent now than, than it has ever been, I would think. Yeah. And the, you know, the reason why I kind of asked to set the stage on that is as we look at, you know, where marketers can and should be spending money kind of going forward, how much emphasis are those people going to be putting into, you know, working directly with publishers and, or their agencies working directly with publishers, or if they're just doing, you know, a lot more uh, of things programmatically. One of the examples that I've brought up on the show before, which I see all the time and not to bag on ESPN, but I just can't, it blows my mind when I watch Monday Night Football uh, or whatever. And they have the like, every single time, every single time I watch it, the screen that says like, you know, your program will be back in the minute or your programming will be back in a minute with like some cheesy music in the background. And you're like... Mm -hmm. How is this possible in 2020? It's a missed opportunity. They, yeah. It's mind blowing. And it's, I've been saying this for, for six years at this point, and it's still this, it's still the case. It's like they have unlimited programming that they could promote with those ad units. But, and the reason why I always share that story is like it, ESPN's a top 50 site. How 
if they can't do it on their premier property with like an OTT, you know, streaming kind of option, then like clearly how much other stuff is broken, right? Like in that, and it kind of speaks to like a lot of these publishers as you start adding video, as you start adding o- OTT and these other things, like it just seems so much more complex than it ever has been. Oh, I'm sure it is. I mean, imagine back in the day when you really only needed to program for one, you know, one channel on one screen and the screen was that TV, right? That's super easy. Now you've got to support tons of device configurations, tons of network configurations and stability uh, configurations, right? You've got to prepare for it all. So I don't, I don't envy folks on that side of the table that are trying to take these audiences and make sure that they have you know, a very tailored experience for everyone, regardless of what platform you're on. But back to your question of like, are advertisers and agencies going to continue to like to work directly with, with these sites or these, you know, these networks or whatnot? I, again, I, I think it all comes back to like, what are your goals as a marketer? What are the things that you're trying to achieve and how can you most effectively do that? And in some cases, I think you're going to have multiple different strategies on how to, you know, how to achieve those goals. And I would think that, you know, sometimes some of the most cherished things I think these these networks or these uh, you know these sites will will hold those back for these bigger relationships. I don't know. I, I don't. Somebody said like, will will we ever stop uh, taking people for steaks or buying them jeans and sunglasses? I don't think so. Even though you can do it all with machines, I think there's still a human element to everything. People can come to our website and sign up for our service, but like they still kind of want to talk to a human. Yeah, for sure. Especially when something goes wrong. Yeah, I mean, I I just think that the state of the state of advertising right now, you know, especially with digital, as we're trying to like make sense of all this going forward, is is so complex. And then you know, kind of with all of that inventory, with all of that uh, stuff out there, with all of that complexity, there lies the opportunity for for malware, for malvertising, um, for bad actors to come in, um, where there's areas of opportunity. You know, where there's complexity, there's additional areas of opportunity. So kind of like what's the state of, you know, malvertising right now and, uh, and how, are, how are folks attacking these systems? It's interesting. So, you know, when I joined this, this company, uh, this company was founded, you know, kind of at the end of uh, 2017. So starting in, in, in 2018, um, we were not the first company to go out and try and solve this problem. There were a whole bunch of folks that tried to solve it. And with varying degrees of success, most of the folks have struggled because of the methodologies that they've used to try and solve this problem. Uh, in the early days, folks were trying to do offline scanning to, you know, let's run it offline and let's see if it does something bad. And if it does, don't let it run. And the bad actors actually quickly figured out that they could detect when they were in an offline scanning environment. And what they would do is they just wouldn't show their malicious payload. They just wouldn't execute. And so like the bad actors out innovated that technology. The next one was like kind of like URL blacklisting and, and, and figuring out, and if you've got a bad URL, put it on a, on a block list. And the problem with that is you have to have something bad happen before it gets on a block list. And so, you know, when we came in, we really wanted to out-innovate. And in some of the other big challenges are that, that the bad actors kind of get free at bats in each of those methodologies. You know, if they get blocked, well, they just change their URL and they'll try another URL and creep their way through. We felt that the only way to solve this problem, really in its totality, was to create a financial disincentive for the bad actor. And we're the only ones that do this. If you're on a site that is protected by us right now, and you're a bad actor, and you're buying, we actually let you buy. We let you buy, and we let you render the image that you put through your creative approval. 
which oftentimes is a, is a brand advertiser. They, they will steal brands off of the internet and, and put those through the creative approval process. Because we let the bad actor buy that ad, he or she is pot committed. They actually have spent money. What we then do is our code, which is a single line of JavaScript, we're analyzing uh, the execution of JavaScript at runtime. And what we do is when we see malicious JavaScript trying to break out of one of these ads, we prevent it from executing. Therefore, the bad actor never gets the user to land on that, congratulations, Ian, you want an Amazon gift card page. And since that user never lands on that page, the user experience is preserved, which is what the publisher wants. The publisher gets paid, which is what the publisher wants. But if you think of these people, like I said earlier in the podcast, if you think of them as the most sophisticated performance marketers on the planet, if you were a performance marketer and you're buying ads on, you said ESPN. So if you're buying ads on ESPN and you're not getting engagement, you're not getting the, the, the auto click through that landing page, what do you do? You stop buying. And so what our software has done is it's created that financial disincentive to give the bad actor the signal that they're not getting ROI on that site. And therefore, they actually stop attacking the site. And so that's the secret sauce. And you asked what the state was of, of malvertising. You know, like it's been very, it's been a very choppy, just like life. It's been a choppy 2020. We saw, you know, surges in, in Q2. We saw, I would say, about the same amount of activity in, in Q3. It's generally a, a, a weekend thing. So in Q3, we just released our smart report. You can get it if you go to our website at, at clean.io. And our report kind of takes this, these analytics. We have our code runs on uh, 7 million different sites and apps. And so we've got census of the internet level data of what's going on in the ecosystem. Uh, a few things from that report, you know, through Q3, a lot of it was on the weekends. Why weekends? Well, bad actors like to strike when the people in ad operations aren't sitting in front of their computers with their hands on their keyboards. So they try and do it, you know, evenings, weekends, holidays. That's generally speaking a, a very solid time. We also saw a tremendous amount of attacks in Q3 within the Facebook environment, specifically within the embedded browser on Facebook on mobile phones. And why you would ask, like, why there? Well, it's cookie-less traffic, so it's probably cheaper. It's more difficult to reproduce, right? So if it happens in that environment, um, and you'll be familiar with that environment when you're scrolling in your Facebook feed and you see a story that you want to read, when you click on that story, even though it may want to take you to cbs.com, it doesn't take you outside of the Facebook app. You still stay within that window um, that is Facebook. Bad actors have figured out that, that their campaigns can live longer there and they can get better engagement there. And so they bought a lot of traffic uh, within the Facebook environment in Q3. So, uh, you know, I, I think for all intents and purposes, like the bad actors are alive and well. It is a little bit of a cat and mouse game and they're not going to stop innovating. And so you just got to, you know, got to stay on your toes. And, uh, you know, if you see something, say something. So, you mentioned you're on, on 7 million sites. So tell me a little bit about CleanAd and what the results kind of have been as you're on some of these sites. Like what, are, what is the, uh, the kind of uh, customer success story, so to say? So I think it varies from client to client. There's no one that's immune from this problem, right? So like, if, I mean, if you have programmatic dollars flowing through onto your site, you probably have some semblance of a problem. The acuteness of the problem is going to vary by site. And you'll know you have a problem when you're generally speaking, your users will tell you. If you have a reasonable number of users, they're going to tell you you have a problem. And they'll, com they'll complain on Twitter or they'll send you emails or, or whatnot. But the, uh, it is different with every site. Like we've had sites come in where 
on a Friday afternoon, uh, you know, they'll ping us and say at 4.30, one of our a news publisher came into our funnel on, a, on at 4.30 on a Friday afternoon. We went from first call to completing a contract to code on page in two hours. That's how acute the problem was. When we got the code on page and we started getting reporting back, they were losing approximately 50% of all of their page views. And so, as you guys know, because you're on the internet all day, every day, this isn't a thing that happens, generally speaking, at that acute nature. But for them at that point in time, it was that acute where the bad actor just happened to be winning every impression that they were trying to buy on the site. And one in every two page views was getting redirected to this malicious landing page. But if you think about the behavior, if you want to put your, yourself into the mindset of the behavior of a bad actor, your whole goal is to achieve engagement, but not get caught. And so if you were trying to do that, you know, like the, I'll use it an analogy of like, if you worked at a restaurant or a bar and you wanted to steal from the restaurant or bar, you're going to try and steal like dollars at a time, not like $500 at a time. And I think the bad actors take that same approach, which is they try to uh, run at such a low level that they do what all performance marketers would do. It's the frequency cap, right? So they try and run at a very low level to evade detection, but get engagement. So the behaviors are very indicative of, of what a most sophisticated performance marketer would do. You know, and it's just like the, the entire game is for them to you know, stay alive, not get caught, get engagements. And then I think the other thing that they do is if you were a bank robber, you wouldn't rob from the same bank every day. And so they're very fast moving. They'll move around the ecosystem. We'll see them attack these sites. And then in the same day or the same hourly period, they'll move entirely from those sites to over to these sites. Um, or over to this SSP, they'll have multiple seats at multiple DSPs so that if one gets shut off, they've got five more ready to turn on. And so they're, they're just very sophisticated in how they set themselves up for future success. And so how do they make money? That's a great question. We get that question all the time. So you've had it happen to you, right, Ian? Oh yeah, for sure. Okay. So often these things are, are you know, sometimes it will say like, congratulations, you won an Amazon gift card. Take this survey for your chance to win. And so what they're trying to do in that scheme is collect PII, right? They're trying to get you to give them, to answer a few questions, get engaged, and then say, oh my God, I want to win that gift card. Here's my email address. You and I probably wouldn't do that. But like my mom, you know, if it looks like Facebook and it's within Facebook, she might just get, you know, duped that it is Facebook. So that's number one, right? So they will then, you know, they'll collect PII and then sell that and sell those matches. In other times, I think what they do is they repurpose affiliate offers. So one of the ones that I have often seen because, you know, I have Verizon uh, as my cell phone provider and I have Comcast as my internet provider. When I'm on my phone, oftentimes I'll get one that says like, Verizon would like you to take the survey or, hey, Comcast customer, you know, we'd like to learn a little bit more about you. What I think those are is I think those companies have actually commissioned people to do research and do market research on their users. And they're probably paying a bounty for every survey completion. Now, they would probably be mortified to know that someone has taken that survey completion bounty and repurposed into this sort of experience. So that's another way they make money. The last way I would say is sometimes these things, as you're scrolling, you may get this one that says, you know, hey, Ian, your phone is infected with 39 viruses. Click here. Obviously, like the close button doesn't work. And if you hit, you know, cancel, Unfortunately, instead of cancel and okay, they've got both of those buttons programmed to take you into the app store to download an app. 
And so you may believe that your phone is infected or that you've got a virus. All that really was for the most part was malvertising, injecting that into your, into your display. And then their bounty would be, if you went and downloaded the app that they dropped you into, they would get paid a, you know, a CPA or a CPI cost per install, cost per action for you completing that behavior. So a lot of it, I think is really just, you know, this affiliate ecosystem and, and just offers and repurposing these offers into engagements. And if they get engagements, they get paid. How does the, the, the quote unquote death of the third party cookie and, and some of the changes with cookies, how does this kind of get affected? Well, matching users and getting the attribution correct is probably going to be critical for, for many folks and how they get compensated. I think in, in the interim, you know, obviously I, I think it, 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 there's a big question mark as to what it's going to do to publishers and CPMs and how that's going to play out. And I think these bad actors, you know, they, they really just want to get an engagement. They just want to get you onto a landing page where they can collect. And, and, and oftentimes they're looking at you to like raise your hand and give you their PII. So they're not reliant, especially on that, those targeting parameters that, that, you know, a real brand advertiser would need to cookie users. Their whole goal is if they can buy a million impressions and they frequency cap that at one in 24 hours, you know, they can go out and reach a million users. And, and if, they, if they execute their code, have a million engagements, you know, a million single engagements. And gosh, if they can get any response rate uh, to those, uh, it's wildly profitable. If you think about it, if you're trying to buy thousand impressions and pay a dollar and you get a half a percent click-through rate, right? What's that? Like, you know, 50 engagements. For these guys at a thousand impressions, they're going to get a thousand engagements. And so if they just get one of these people to click, click on it and to offer up their email address or complete the survey. I don't know. What's that worth? Five bucks, eight bucks, who knows? So you get one, if you spend a dollar and you can return five, imagine what happens if you got 10 people. Imagine if you got 50 people to complete the offer. I think it, it, like, it's almost a game of arbitrage for the bad actors. And so you know, the death of the cookie drives CPMs down or it makes it more affordable for them to connect with real users. I think the arbitrage game probably gets better for them. Yeah, that's wild. You know, I was thinking about this in, in terms of uh, what will become this, uh, like the identity crisis that everything is going to go through, like who is who and, and, and all that stuff and being verified for, for who you are and, and 2FA and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it'll just be really, really interesting to see um, people are, are going to be opting into receiving all types of marketing communication. But specifically with, with the bad actors, as you said, it's like, it's all a race to the bottom for them anyways, right? Like for all of us who are like, you know, paying $20 a click for, you know, getting some super, you know, long tail search term title, uh, you know, whatever it is, I'm sure they're not paying for, I don't know, maybe they are paying for those. You tell me, um, you know, if they well, want it's an arbitrage CMOs. game, right? If they, if they find good traffic, they can up their bid and pay the right price to earn more of that traffic. That's like, you have to put them in, like they're in this performance. And I know everyone's a performance advertiser. Everyone's looking for performance, but these guys are like the slickest of the slickest performance advertisers. Yeah, that's crazy. Tell me a little bit about CleanCard and, and your new uh, e-commerce solution. Yeah. So, you know, at the heart of what we do, we prevent malicious code, right? That's what we do on, uh, on the clean ad side. Uh, and we do that for tons of publishers. We've been doing it for a long time. We have publisher partners who have e-commerce sites as well. So we started seeing some sort of nefarious behavior on some of these sites that we couldn't directly tie back to ads. Right? We started to see malicious and, and untrusted behaviors happening on their websites. And 
it kind of pointed us in this direction of client-side injections, which means that there was code resident on the machine, either on the phone or the laptop or wherever you were using, that was injecting into these web pages and creating a nefarious user experience. When we did a whole bunch of R&D, we started really understanding that not all injections are malicious. There's a whole bunch of them that are actually untrusted. And some of the ones that we found to be untrusted, and by untrusted, we mean if you own a website and there's code that executes on your website, like we believe firmly that you should be able to control all the code that executes on your website. You own it. It's yours. People shouldn't be able to nefariously inject code. And that's how we've solved it on the clean ads side, which is people were injecting nefarious code through the ads ecosystem, and we've given them controls to solve that problem. On the e-commerce side, it's called Clean Cart is our product on that side. What we saw was a lot of code executing on e-commerce sites that was really not approved or was uh, you know, kind of deemed trustworthy by the merchant. And the biggest one that we found in this, in this kind of world of untrusted code that's executing on e-commerce merchant sites is this thing called Honey or Wikibuy. You may be familiar with these sites and these extensions. What they are is they're Chrome or Firefox or Safari extensions uh, that you, know, you, you add to your browser. And they help you as a user when you're at checkout by automatically injecting every promo code known to man and to woman at checkout to hopefully save you money. So if you're an end user, you're like, this is awesome. I can save 25% just by going to this site and Honey pops up and says, hey, Matt, we got 10 coupons for you. Let us try them out. It's really bad for merchants, right? Like merchants, you know, and and e-commerce marketers, right? Who are sending traffic to their websites. I think everyone's willing to pay for incremental. You know, if you can get someone to come to a website and buy something, awesome. Give them an exclusive code. Let the user use that code. Let's track it back to that, you know, affiliate or wherever that that referral came from, whether it's a social media influence or whomever. But if what it really is, is nefarious software that is scraping all those codes and making them available for everyone, we think that's really bad. We think that's really bad for e-commerce merchants. We also think that if you're an e-commerce merchant, right, and I go to your store and I try to buy something and Honey pops up and says, let me inject this code. And that code is first responder 2020. I'm not a first responder. So I really don't deserve that code. And so what we think is we want to give these controls back to merchants. And that's what we've done. We've created software that we're in closed beta with right now. We've got 20 merchants that are using it. And what we're doing is we're blocking Honey at checkout. And we're blocking Wikibuy. And we're blocking these nefarious discount extensions from ruining your, your revenue, from give, giving you control of your user experience and making sure that you can manage your brand when your users are on your website. So that's what we're doing. We're putting those controls back in the hands of merchants. And what they're telling us, like loud and clear, is they want that control. They want to be able to discount. They want to be able to give promo codes out to users, but they want when they're redeemed to be for incremental sales. They want them to be tied to that. So we've talked with countless merchants. You know, many of folks are using like Instagram influencers and they'll give an influencer a code. And then all of a sudden tomorrow, a hundred sales are attributed to that influencer. And I think a novice marketer is like, oh, hey, that's awesome. We did a partnership with that guy and he drove a hundred sales. The sophisticated marketers understand that Honey has probably picked up that code and is now applying it because it's the highest code that's out there. So, so that's what we're doing. 
Same thing as we're doing in the ads world, we're doing now in e-commerce and giving control back to people who own websites and let them control the user experience and their revenue. Yeah, it's super fascinating. I, I will say um, it is not something that I had ever thought of until this conversation and, and the prep for this about those type of, of coupon organizations. Because as a consumer, you think about things as like, oh, you know, well, this is just a code that's out there. So like, they don't care who uses it because like, they just want to get the sale or get the thing. But, you know, as a marketer, when you're using that to track things or to, uh, or to have, you know, you know, uh, short sales or seasonality or different sort of things, you lose all the control. And I think, you know, there's one side of the argument that could be like, well, you know, if uh, if you're getting sales, it's a good thing, but it's uh, it's not the case when those are your margins. And you know, as you mentioned, like it doesn't matter who that code is for, right? It could be it could be someone who has an ARP card. It could be uh, someone who's you know a veteran or you know military spouse or something. It could be whatever it is, and that's not what what the the site has uh, has in mind. Um, and uh, it's it's fascinating to see kind of both sides of of the argument there. But I, you know, I gotta say, it made me rethink, you know, how those tools kind of in, interact with uh, with the website. But I, I don't own a, in, an e commerce company, so I, I I hadn't really thought of it that way. You know, we've talked to countless uh, e commerce companies about the problem. You know, I would say that there is a you know a universal dislike for them. You know, they don't. You know, when these things inject, they have no control over them. They have no control over how they scrape. You know, we're working with one fashion uh, uh, interior design company, right? So they they do uh, you know carpets and drapes and all that sort of stuff. And they work with uh, tons of interior designers, and they want to give exclusive codes to some of these interior designers so that they'll drive you know the people that they work for to come and buy on the site, but not necessarily use that code. They really just want to incentivize them to know about the site. Their big problem was that. If you gave one of the interior designers an exclusive code and that interior designer has Honey on their laptop, the very first thing that Honey does is it scrapes the code out of your checkout so that they grab it so that everybody after you gets access to it. And so their biggest problem was that those codes were actually getting out to real end users and they had to actually like stop and cancel orders. So it's creating a real nightmare for them because obviously their business is not sustainable if they're giving everyone 50% off. And that was not the intent of the coupon. And so it created a real customer service nightmare for them where, you know, margins were eroding, customer experiences were terrible because they were having to actually cancel orders and, and say, listen, like we really can't stay in business if we're giving you 50% off. Uh, and that was not the intent. And it, like, listen, those kind of stories, I've got a hundred of them where folks are you know, buying podcast sponsorships and giving an exclusive code to a podcast and seeing sales, you know, skyrocket and go through the roof and wishfully thinking, God, I hope that podcast was that effective. And then almost making marketing decisions based on what they thought was the effectiveness of the podcast when truthfully, it was one of these discount extensions that grabbed the code and started applying it to everybody. I'm with you. Like, you know, prior to me kind of coming into this, I, as a user, I thought that these are, are good. Merchants, um, you know, don't feel the same way. They would love to give the right discount to the right user based on the right traffic path that brought them to that website. Yeah, it's um, it's about choice, right? And it's about if that's something like if you're a company that you know you want to 
you know, leverage, like you have a very, you know, clear coupon strategy and you want to, you know, leverage things like, you know, honey or whatever to, to get those, to get those things. That's great. But it's really cool to hear that there's a solution for the folks that, that don't want that. And I'm sure, as you mentioned, there's a ton they can go check out uh, clean IO. You got it. Cool. So what's next? What's, uh, what's on the horizon for you all? So we just, you know, here we are in, in, you know, late to mid November here, right? In Q4 of 2020. I don't know when people are going to listen to this podcast, so I'll update that. But yeah, we just launched that product yesterday. And so we've now kind of come out uh, uh, into the ecosystem and, and, and shouted about it from the rooftops. So yeah, for us, it's about growing and building that business, continuing to grow and build, you know, our, our malvertising prevention and protection business. You know, both of these things kind of help inform each other. So it creates a bit of a flywheel from a data perspective is when we kind of take into consideration all of these uh, pages that we're on, we've got an incredible data asset that, that we are building um, so that we can help make the internet safer, safer for transactions, safer for consumption, and really hopefully, you know, give all of these folks more predictable revenue, right? I mean, like we know how malvertising impacts publisher revenue from a negative perspective. We know how it's impacting on the e-commerce side. And so we're just excited to kind of give these tools to more and more people and uh, you know, get, just get further entrenched in the ecosystem. All right, let's get into our lightning round. These questions are fast and easy, just like marketing with Salesforce. You can go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Salesforce, they're the best. They, they've been with us since the beginning of this show. They put your customer at the center of every interaction Go to salesforce.com slash marketing to learn more. Lightning round questions. Matt, are you ready? Let's do it. Number one, do you have a favorite book or podcast or TV show that you've been binging recently? I started The Queen's Gambit, um, which is on Netflix, which everyone is raving about. Uh, I would say uh, a book that I kind of go back to uh, is Ben Horowitz, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things. If you uh, are leading people or leading a startup or, uh, you know, just a uh, you need common sense answers to life's daily challenges. It's a, it's a killer book. I highly recommend it. It's truly, a, uh, it's truly an incredible book. Very, very visceral. Do you have a either hobby or habit or something that you picked up during shelter in place? Wow. A hobby that I picked up during Corona? Is that what you're, is that what you're asking? Yeah. Yeah, indeed. Over the, over the time that we've been uh, stuck in our houses. So I will say that like my life before Corona was I was probably on the road every week or every other week. You know, I mean, back in the days of Oath, I was traveling, you know, every week of the month and usually three days a week at least and often international and all that sort of stuff. For the first time in my life, I've been able to have dinner with my family pretty much every single night for the last nine months, which has been probably the greatest life experience that I could ever ask for. That's my hobby now is I actually get to see my family. That's, that's awesome to hear. Very, very cool. Do you, uh, do you have a best piece of advice for a first-time CEO? Have mentors. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm very uh, lucky to have countless mentors that I can call on from various aspects of my career that are either, you know, at, you know either in the CEO level or, or beyond that or even you know, at the worker bee level. You can never have enough great advice from folks. So I would say cultivate those relationships. Um, make sure you, you uh, protect your, your reputation along the way, but surround yourself with great mentors that can help you because you're going to need it at every step. Is there a question that you never get asked that you wish you were asked more often? I never get asked if there is a question 
that I would like to be asked more often. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> How's that? I'm an open book. I usually like people ask me anything. So yeah, no, I, I I'm pretty much an open book. People ask me uh, everything that they would want to, that I would want them to be asked. I have a backup for that. Ready? Let's go. How many hours did you spend playing Marvel versus Capcom uh, back in the day? Because that still remains always the longest line at the arcade. And I would imagine that you were, when you worked at, at, at Capcom, uh, there had to be some water cooler talk about it. You know, there's a lot of water cooler talk about it. So the interesting thing is um, I joined Capcom because I was running a mobile games company that created casual games. Right. So, you know, Capcom's portfolio is all hardcore. It's Street Fighter, Resident Evil, you know, as you said, Marvel versus Capcom, that sort of thing. The games that we were creating was who wants to be a millionaire on your cell phone? Are you smarter than a fifth grader on your cell phone? The reason Capcom acquired us is because we were really knee deep in a lot of these casual games that, and this is before the iPhone, right? So we were making the games that, you know, you would go and spend you know, time on and it would appeal to wide audiences and Capcom's games always appealed to hardcore. I am not a hardcore gamer. I am a child of the 70s and I am a stick and one button guy. I started on Atari. Uh, I had a ColecoVision uh, and I had a Nintendo. Um, my kids are addicted to Fortnite. But no, I, I was not a, a Street Fighter guy. Too many buttons, too many sticks, too much mashing going on. So it was all mashing. It was right? the original button mashing was... Uh, was just sitting at the arcade and just mashing away uh, to your heart's content. If you want to be humbled, Ian, I don't know if you have kids, but I have an eight-year-old boy who is completely addicted to Fortnite and he puts every dollar he ever has. So if you've never played Fortnite, you should give it a try. If you want to be humbled, play against your kid in, in Fortnite. And oh, good night. Oh, I've been humbled. I've been humbled far worse than, uh, than that. I played my nephew... Uh, in tech mobile because he they have the nintendo all the nintendo games for his switch and he absolutely mashed me in uh tech mobile the other day with bo jackson and i was like this is my nightmare like this well, is the you game know the, i was good at <laughs> but you know the secret to tecmo is that you actually like when you're holding your stick you're looking over at your opponent to see what play they pick and you pick the same play i know right? and he like, was doing that the whole time so i had to he was i had yeah, I know, but I, I I got him on round two though. Uh, we played the other day, so Tecmo Tecmo was one of my all time favorites. So you hit you hit the nerve with that one. That I love that game. Oh, it's so great! I did. I I just kept uh, going back like twenty yards with the quarterback and then throwing the super deep bomb. So it's like basically a pun, even if it gets picked. And I I got him with that on round two. So we, we'll have to have a, a rubber match. I love it. Well, this has been awesome conversation. We will next time we'll just talk video games. Uh, Matt, it's been great having you on the show. Any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, listen, I, I would say that if your audience wants to reach out, uh, obviously we're at clean.io. And if you want to connect with me, my email is Matt, M A T T, at clean.io, or you can find me on LinkedIn. You know, if you're a marketer or an e commerce merchant uh, and you're looking for uh, help, we would love to help you out and give everybody a free trial for all of our products so you get to actually get that CT scan to understand what's going on on your sites and uh, you know, and just make good decisions to protect your business. So any way we can help, just, uh, just reach out. Awesome, Matt. Take care. Thanks, Ian. Thanks for having me. Marketing Trends Podcast is brought to you by Salesforce. Discover marketing built on the world's number one CRM, Salesforce. Put your customer at the center of every interaction 
automate engagement with each customer, and build your marketing strategy around the entire customer journey. Salesforce, we bring marketing and engagement together. Learn more at salesforce.com slash marketing. You have eight seconds to make a connection or risk a click away onto the next topic. The difference lies in your ability to deliver relevant experiences to your audience across devices and across channels. But delivering on a really great experience is impossible without the right people and the right technology. You've got the right people, but your technology choices will make or break someone's experience with your brand. At the center of gravity of your digital experience, Brightspot Content Management System can deliver relevant content, personalized experiences, and cross-channel synergies to create unforgettable brand experiences. So you can be a bright spot in someone's day. Head over to brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends to find out right now. From global crisis to hunger relief efforts, the messages you deliver save lives, inform important decision-making, and help keep communities safe and sound. The speed and scale of your content needs to be delivered faster and on a much larger scale. Brightspot Content Management System has supported some of the world's largest brands to communicate on a global scale. From Johnson & Johnson sharing critical information with their customers to helping Whole Foods tell their brand story to a global audience. Brightspot is designed to handle rapid iteration and personalized messages to those you care about most. Learn more at brightspot.com forward slash marketing trends.